Good morning. What a beautiful morning. I have, a, I have something you should know. You should thank Casey for this. Um, for the 10 of you that were here last time I, uh, I spoke, uh, it was a rain, it was a you know, ice storm, it was snow, and it was just treacherous, I guess you say, in this, in this part of the world, uh, to get here. So Casey, the very next day, texted you like, uh, I'm going to give you a good Sunday this week. I'm going to give it to you in March. And now I'm thinking March. March could be 10 degrees or it could be 70 degrees. So I was like, I'm going to give you a good Sunday. And he did. So you can thank Casey for that. Um, but I guess I do have to have you out here at a certain time today for a certain game or something, I guess. But I'll do my, I'll do my best. Um, so if you have your scriptures, if you turn to Luke chapter 7, we'll be in that this morning. But I want, I want you to think about this while you're flipping there. Uh, what wows you? Like, what amazes you? What, what have you seen, whether it be in, in God's creation or just around you, that just makes your jaw drop and you say, wow, is it a sunset over the ocean or a sunrise over the ocean? Is it a mountain range? Is it, is it a falls? Is it just spring colors um, coming back to life? every spring. What is it that wows you? Now, we know that wows can be bad, too, right? You could be wow in a good way, and you could be wowed in a bad way. And think about that. What are some things that wow you in a bad way, that amaze you how bad things are, like a natural disaster or, uh, you know, a wreck you come upon or uh, something like that? But again, so there's like all these different ways to be wowed, because you could be wowed by things, by seeing things. You'd be wowed in a good way, in a bad way. But People also wow us, right? Both in a good way and a bad way. Uh, somebody does something for you really nice that you were completely, uh, completely unexpectedly, and you just go, wow, that was so, so nice. And, and it sticks with you for a long time. You're just amazed by the generosity and the love that that person showed for you. But then again, they're wowed on the other side, too. Like if you look on Facebook, wow, I can't believe somebody put that on there. Or, wow, I can't believe they said that. Or if they wrote on your walls, kids, wow, I can't believe they did that, right? So you can be wowed in a good way and a bad way. One, one thing sticks, sticks in my mind as I was thinking about this, and this was just a, uh, a, a normal weekday. The boys were younger. I think Josh could have had to have been like maybe 12 or 11 at the most. And uh, we, we came home one night from work, and they had prepared a, a date night dinner for us. You know, they had, had a table all fancy and everything, and we got home, and they were preparing. I can't remember what they prepared, uh, but they made, all, they made the dinner. What was even more wowing is they cleaned it up. I mean, that right there, you need to put that on the calendar. Um, but they made us uh, get into uh, fancy clothes, so I had a polo and, a, and, a, and a khakis from work, and so I went in and put on a necktie just around my polo, and Amy had to, you know, go put on something fancy, too, and and they fed us and took care of us. And we're just like, wow, they do do some good things. <laughs> Kidding, they do a lot of good things. Um, but people wow us, right, in a good and a bad way. Last time I was up here, I talked about how Jesus um, shed tears or cried uh, two times in Scripture. And apparently I'm on a, an emotional thing with Jesus because today I'm going to talk about two times that he was wowed or that he was amazed, Scripture says. And I argued, if you were here, listened to the, to the sermon online about Lazarus being raised from the dead when Jesus cried, I argued that the two times that Jesus shed tears or cried was for the same reason. 
that's the people that he was directly uh, relating to at that time, did not understand who he really was. They didn't grasp who Jesus was, and I think Jesus was frustrated with that, and uh, he was partly probably angry with that, and he was just sort of beyond emotion that he just couldn't believe that he poured into these people and they just couldn't see. This time, when Jesus says that he was marveled or he was amazed two times, they're actually opposites. This time in Luke chapter 7, I want to read this for you. This is the first time that Jesus was wowed in a good way. So if you turn, if you have scriptures, Luke chapter 7, and I think I'm in the ESV, um, if you have that. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the elders to the Jews to him, asking him to come heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you in this, uh, to do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with him. He was not far from the house when a centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even deserve, uh, consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and I tell that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, follow him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Interesting uh, fact, this is actually found in another passage in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 8, I believe. And they are very similar stories, but one there's one difference in it. It does not change the story whatsoever. Uh, Luke's account, uh, Luke's point when writing his letter was to give an orderly, accurate account uh, of the event. Matthew's purpose is to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So they're writing for two different purposes. It doesn't mean the story is different. It just means they're written from different perspectives for different reasons. But the interesting thing is both instances, you see that Jesus never actually got to the house to heal the servant. Now, Matthew says that the centurion himself came. Luke says that the centurion himself didn't feel worthy to come to Jesus, so he sent friends to speak on his behalf both times. First time he sent the Jews, Jewish leaders, the second time he sent uh, his, his friends. But none of Neither of those accounts, Jesus actually was in the house with that servant when he healed him. The centurion, if you're familiar with uh, Roman culture or the Bible times, you know, Israel was under Rome's command, and pretty much the people of Jesus' time, Jews, were under the command of the Roman soldiers that were around. Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, if, uh, if, uh, if you need to, if you are called to take on a backpack one mile, go the extra mile, go two miles. That was in reference to a Roman soldier being able to, to grab a Jew at any time and say, here, carry my stuff. And uh, as you can imagine, Roman soldiers, not Jews, would take advantage of that. They would oppress Jews, um, Jewish men. You, you can only imagine how it would go. But something is different about this centurion. And a centurion actually means that he was in command of a hundred men, so he was uh, he was an upper rank Roman uh, Roman soldier, and so he understood authority. 
But he wasn't a Jew. He knew nothing about the Old Testament, only of what the Jews in that area of Capernaum told him. And there's a whole other story that we could outline just talking about the centurion and his integrity. Because you see, when the Jewish leaders came to Jesus, they said, this man deserves it. He's done a lot for us. He helped us build the synagogue. So you can imagine the centurion as being a compassionate, kind, caring man with great integrity to be on the good side of the Jewish leaders. So I'm sure he had some idea of the Jewish history from that. But he comes to Jesus with a sick servant. It says that he he valued the servant greatly, and he wanted Jesus to heal him. But he didn't feel worthy, number one, to come to him, and number two, for Jesus even to enter his house. That is consistent on both accounts. And so what is it that amazed Jesus? And I think oftentimes we don't really think about faith coinciding and going together with something else. But this passage is interesting because this really is an example of the centurion's faith, but it's a passage about authority. That's the theme of the passage. Jesus is amazed at his faith, but his faith is in reference to Jesus' authority. Does that make sense? And I started thinking about this as I was studying this passage, how authority and faith go together. You know, this day and age, authority is kind of a vague thing, right? We don't, we don't like authority too much. But think about it during Jesus' three years on earth, how many times he was questioned as to whose authority he was doing the things that he was doing by the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and other Jewish leaders. Like, whose authority are you doing this under? The centurion says, I know you have authority. I'm not questioning it one bit. I have faith that you can heal my servant. And Jesus was amazed. So I want to give you the opposite. One time Jesus was amazed at something else. And so if you have your Bibles, again, flip over to uh, Matthew chapter, or Mark, I said every, I said that first service, Mark chapter 6. So if you, if you followed along, you've read this um, already a few weeks ago. So it says, this is starting with verse 1 of Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogues, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? With what wisdom has he been given? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't and his brother James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick because uh, a few sick and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. But notice, when Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith, what context it is. He's teaching, he's performing miracles, he's healing And it says the people of his hometown, that'd be like me going back to Beardstown and like, what are you doing up there? You should not be up there, right? Like, isn't this a carpenter? Don't we know him? Didn't I babysit him, right? Like, how is he doing this? And now, an interesting thing, I have to to put a disclaimer on here because if there's one thing that drives me crazy, it's when people... Uh, negative reactions to God. God can't do something. God needs something. God has to do something. And if you see right here, it's very tricky because it says Jesus couldn't perform miracles. 
But then it says he did, right? I mean, I get the idea that we picture this, we hear this passage, and we almost think of Jesus as being kind of like Santa Claus in the Elf movie, right? Buddy the Elf helped Santa. Most of you have seen it, right? Buddy the Elf helped Santa build his, uh, was his uh, the, the, the engine that runs the sleigh because Christmas spirit is no more. Nobody believes in Santa Claus anymore, and you get the idea that Santa Claus's power comes from the people's belief. You read Mark chapter 6, and you're like, wait a minute. Is Jesus like Santa Claus? Is Jesus' powers dependent on the people's faith? No. That is, I do not believe that that is what this passage is saying whatsoever, so don't even think it. We should never, ever say that God can't do something. God needs to do something. We can't say that because if we do, we do not have a proper concept of God. God does not need anything, and there's nothing that he cannot do. What I believe Jesus is saying, or what this passage is saying, is that because of the people's lack of faith, Jesus felt that even if he would have healed the people that were sick, even the others that he didn't, even if he would have performed those miracles, guess what? Those people in that town would not have changed their opinion one bit, would they? Whereas a centurion who says, Jesus, I believe I believe that you have the power. I believe that you have the authority. Please just say the word. I am firmly convinced that had Jesus not healed the centurion's servant, that the centurion's faith would not have changed one bit. His opinion of Jesus would not have changed. He understood who Jesus was. The people that Jesus was with in his hometown, all around him, that day that Lazarus was raised from the dead, that day looking over Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem did not understand did not know whose authority he came from. And yet a Gentile Roman soldier does. And there is another dangerous, dangerous thing that we have to, have to clear up because we cannot leave this place thinking this. These passages can lead to a very dangerous theology. Now, some of you have probably heard the word theology um, said a lot from up here. I'm just going to give you a, a quick reference. Theology literally means the truths about God. Theos is the Greek word for God. Logos, you've probably heard before, is the Greek word for word or truth. So when you hear the word theology, it literally just means a study about God or the truths about God. And one truth about God that can be misguided here in this passage of the centurion. So what you're saying is the more faith I have, the more miracles I get right? I don't even have to have Jesus come to my house, right? I can have more faith, and Jesus is going to give me whatever I want, because I got a list. I got a list of needs. I got a list of wants, and it depends on which day, which list I choose from when I pray. So are you saying, me, saying to me by reading Luke chapter 7 that Jesus is saying, the more faith you have, the more miracles you receive? And I am not saying that. The scripture is not saying that. Jesus performed miracles during his ministry for a specific purpose. That is to show the people his authority. Back to the authority word. Think about it. Jesus changed water into wine. He calmed the storm. He had power and authority over the elements, over nature. He healed the sick. He healed the demon-possessed. He had the authority over illness. He had the authority over demons. 
finally, with Lazarus and, the, and another little girl, he showed his authority over death. And his miracles throughout his ministry were there to prove his authority, to show his authority to the people, and they missed it. The centurion did not. And so we cannot think that just because we have more faith, just because we pray the right prayer, because we do the right thing, that Jesus is going, that God's going to give us everything that we want. I believe that we have a problem this day and age, the last day and age, the day and age before that, for 2,000 years, is that we are more concerned with Jesus wowing us, showing us something new, doing something else for us to wow us, than we are concerned about doing what he's called us to do, showing our faith in his authority, and thereby wowing him. We are like the people that followed Jesus in his day. We're just looking for a show. I, again, I got a list. I need them. I need that stuff. I want that stuff. But that's not what this passage is saying at all. It's saying that this man understood the authority of Jesus. And he understood that he didn't need to do anything but say the word. And that question, sometimes we come to church, sometimes we go to big gatherings like CIY or IF or uh, uh, Promise Keepers back in the day, Iron Sharpens Iron back in the day. We go to the Passion Conference, things like that. And we, and we sing these really cool songs and we sing these and we feel moved emotionally. We're like, God, show us your glory. God, we want to see you. God, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Stir among us all of these things that we say. And Pastor, like, oh, I got so much out of worship today. And I'm here to tell you that we're more in it for the show because God is saying, if I move today, if I choose to show you my glory, if I choose to show you my presence here today, I expect you to go out and show my presence to the world. Think about when Jesus was on the, getting ready to go up into heaven. This word that we've talked about this morning, authority, comes up again. Remember, Jesus gave us a job to do, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what did he say first? The very first thing he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then he says, therefore, and again, every time I'm up here, I say it. If you see therefore in Scripture, it means you have to look to see what it's there for. You have to look back. So Jesus says, therefore, because I have authority over everything, because I have authority on heaven and on earth, I expect you to do this. I expect you to go out and make disciples of all nations. I was going to say we need to wow Jesus, but I think sometimes we get misguided in that, that we think, well, wowing Jesus, right, means showing up here on Sunday mornings, coming to Sunday school, reading our Bibles, praying before every meal. Those things are great, and God loves those things. But what wows God is when we believe who he said he is and we tell the world about it. That's when we please him. There's one other thing I want to mention today. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 11. You've probably heard of it. It's called the, maybe the Hall of Fame of Faith or the Faith chapter. A list of all these people from the Old Testament that had great faith in God. And the interesting thing about every verse 
Every person that is listed in that passage had faith, and they acted out that faith. They believed, and they did something because of that. That's what we're called to do. But there's one in particular, and I think sometimes we read it just because we're so familiar with the passage that we kind of look over some stuff. Like, um, So we just read, by faith Moses, when he grew up, um, he did this. By faith Abraham, he did this. By faith um, Rahab did this. And we, we just think about that. But I want to read one for you because I find it fascinating. It's about Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham... When God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. You read that, and that's often where we quit. We're like, yeah, Abraham was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Read the next part. That is what fascinates me. 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. This is Abraham who lived thousands, hundreds years before Jesus, believing that God could raise the dead because God promised him that through that son, Isaac, he was going to be the father of a great nation, and so we often disconnect faith and reason, but they go hand in hand, guys. Abraham reasoned. It's like, well, obviously God is going to raise Isaac from the dead because he said that he's going to use Isaac to build the the nation. So I might as well do it because God is faithful and he's going to deliver. This is Abraham. Before he ever met Jesus, before he ever saw a dead person raised to life, he believed because God said it. Do this, Abraham. And Abraham says, okay. I believe in you, God. And as we enter this time of communion, as we enter this time where we take this cup and this bread, Abraham believed that God could raise the dead all of these years before he did. If Jesus doesn't do a single other thing for you for the rest of our lives, he's already done the one that matters the most. And we see it. We look outside in spring. We see resurrection. We don't need to reason in our minds that it exists. We don't need to reason because it's already happened. The tomb is empty. Never questioned. Everybody that ever tried to disprove it throughout history was unable to because it's still empty. And we have to understand that authority of Jesus and that authority of God. And as we enter this time of communion, say, God, I submit to that authority. I believe who you say you are. Help me to please you. Let's pray. God, throughout history, we have seen you work. We've seen you move. In our lives, we've seen you work. And we sometimes just look to you and say, show us something else. Show us something bigger, something better. But God, you have already shown yourself. You've already shown your authority to us by that tomb that is now empty. We were on our way to death, but you proved that you have power over every 
single thing, including death. And you've given us a chance to be alive. God, I pray that we can go out of this place and that we can share that with others who may not know, who may not believe, who may not understand that you are who you say you are. In Jesus' name, amen.